Hallo, ich bin der Tag. Ich bin der Blurini-Bellidisch und Hallo und willkommen zu Episode 39 von Blurini der Podcast von der National Folklore Collection, University College Dublin. I'm honored today to be joined by my friend and colleague from the National Museum of Country Life in County Mayo and a former student here at the Department of Irish Folklore who studied the Taught MA here and one Mr. Tiernan Gaffney. Tiernan is an assistant keeper of the Irish Folklife Collection at the National Museum of Ireland and Country Life um, and his folklore research often explores the creation and connection of communities within shared spaces. And he's here to talk to me today about his current work on an upcoming National Museum uh, exhibition named Murmur of Bees which will launch in the summer of summer 2023. 2023. Turn in, fall Happy out. Um, what is the crack? What's the background to the to the exhibition? Just to give people like an idea of. Yeah, so um, it's actually kind of a crossover between Country Life and Natural History Museum, which is really ah. exciting. Um, so it's basically going to look at the natural history of bees as well as like the sort of folk life and folklore of, of bees. Um, and I suppose the the big thing that we are getting for it is um, the cartoon that Harry Clark drew. Oh, for his St. Covenant window. Oh, amazing. Um, so we're getting that over from Corning Museum of Glass on loan. And then after his, that His goes, draft, his plan. Yeah, so they, they refer to it as a, as a cartoon, but it's basically like a drawing that he did to design the actual window um, of the St. Covenant window that's in the Holland Chapel in Cork. But it's it's actually very different, like the sort of colours and the um, the window, he kind of went with like more of a kind of a blue colour and it's much more kind of majestic, whereas the cartoon is a lot, a lot more going on. Um, and then once that goes... Um, We'll have that for three months now. We'll get a facsimile um, of, of the drawing. So it's just a copy of the drawing. And then mm. downstairs, so that's on the level A of when you first walk into the museum. And then downstairs on the ground floor, that's where we'll have the natural history and the folklife side of things. So oh, okay. we'll have all these different specimen, specimens of bees, um, predators of bees, um, and then like beekeeping equipment. Mm. Lots of different things from art, art and industry, actually, the Art and Industry Museum on like bees that are decorated on different honeypots and stuff like that. And then we'll have, you know, just sort of more folk life related things like St. Covenant's tokens from St. Covenant as well that were taken oh, yeah, uh, back yeah, yeah. in the 1950s and then St. Covenant's measure as well, St. Covenant's ribbon which was basically um, like a ribbon that was used and was put around this you know medieval statue of St. Covenant and then you know a prayer was said or perhaps mm. a kiss statue or whatever it is, this is in Balavornia in Cork and then once you take it off the ribbon is actually used for you know curing properties or healing properties. Like so, broth breeder kind of thing. Yeah yeah very similar so there's a lot of different um, kind of folk belief in, and and folklife objects that we do have associated with bees and with government and this exhibition is kind of like a combination of natural history, folklife, some stuff from art and industry and then Savage. some stuff from you know from different museums as well so Sounds very deadly. excited for it. Did anybody keep bees around here Tom? Papi Borchus keep bees over here in Dunsalem. Was this recently or a long time ago Tom? No it was about 20 years he had a hive there. Was it a very unusual thing for people to be keeping bees? It was. Yeah. He was the only one in the, in the well, for miles around that you could. That what you sort of them. bees would you have around here, Tom? Were there many different types of bees, or would you just call them all bloody bees? Would you have different names for different types of bees? You would. Far away, Kevin. The honeybee course is a different bee altogether to the, to the, to the doctor or the horse bee. Mm-hmm. You know, the... the Horse bee now is a different, he's going around stinging the horses. Yeah. And he's different altogether. The poor little honeybees will do nothing but go to the flowers and take up the honey out of them and go away with it back to the hive. Mm-hmm. But the horse bees won't look for no honey tar, but for blood or something he's looking for. Aye. Did you ever see a swarm of bees? 
I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell me anything about the lifespan of bees at all, Tom? Or could you tell me anything about swarming bees at all that, that you've heard people talking about? Well, I couldn't. Does anybody keep bees around here now, Tom? No. They're kind of, they're, as a creature, they're, I think they're very beloved in Irish tradition. I just feel like people are very kind of, have a fondness for bees. Yeah. And kind of look to them to assess the overall health of nature. And like you were saying, I guess there's, there are so many, there are aspects of material culture in terms of honey and, and production of kind of, uh, honey production and mead and so on and beehives and keeping bees and etc etc yeah. but also then they inhabit this other space in terms of folk belief and kind of apocryphal religious observance and, and religious tradition and so on but um so hopefully today the plan basically is to kind of skim over give an overview of the different kind of branches of tradition as they relate to bees and you were saying that the exhibition focuses on on it includes elements of kind of natural history mm-hmm. which is kind of beyond our scope as folklorists essentially yes. so we'll just stick to the baseless and wild speculations as far yeah. as bees are concerned well we'll find those some of the things that we talk about you know with bees in tradition and you know like in you know kind of folk medicine stuff as well that is actually being used in modern medicine today of course but obviously yeah, yeah. we're going from you know older versions and sort of on uh, medical terms yeah informal yeah informal practice terms. Or whatever so i'll start with just a little introduction and to give a kind of, it gives a brief overview of just the value of bees. It looks like bees in the ancient world and so on. So we'll read this and then we'll start to look at the, at the Irish material. But there's a lot to cover. So this is from Bees and Beekeeping. And it says, why keep bees? If you ask a beekeeper this question, he will probably look at you quizzically and say, bees, I keep them because I like them. This is certainly as good a reason as any for keeping bees, but the inner satisfaction for many beekeepers comes in part from their recognition of the vital role played by bees in nature. In ancient times, the bee was a symbol for priests and kings. Throughout history, it was considered a sacred creature with its products held in high esteem. The ancient Egyptians, for instance, presented honey and wax in the signing of peace treaties. In comparison, slaves were regarded as second-class gifts. Take that, slaves. In the 3rd century BC, the bee was the emblem used on coins in the Greek city of Ephesus and was the symbol of the goddess Artemis. But it was not only the ancient Egyptians and Greeks who honoured the honeybee. It features widely in the mythology of many countries throughout the world. The Germanic tribes, for instance, depicted the top of their tree of life, Yggdrasil, as surrounded by bees. Obviously, they were aware of the prime importance of bees in the life cycle of many plants. The French emperor Napoleon was also a bee enthusiast and had his imperial robes embroidered with golden bees. Even today, bees fascinate many people because of their ordered social structure in which thousands of bees can live together harmoniously without robbing or killing each other. Worth taking some notes there. They feed on pollen and nectar from plants, products which would otherwise go unused. The amazing fact is that in taking, they give something back as well, giving insect-pollinated plants the chance of propagation by transferring pollen from one another to enabling seed formation. This piece goes on then, it says, Bees account for 80% of all pollination by insects, which is a crazy number to think really. Honeybees alone carry out more pollination than butterflies, wasps, bumblebees and flies put together. They have the advantage of being able to pollinate many different types of plants rather than being restricted to just a few, as many wild bees are. Because they overwinter in a colony, large numbers of honeybees are ready to collect pollen in the spring when most plants are in bloom. With bumblebees, however, only the females survive the winter and they then have to rear offspring. In addition, honeybees practice flower fidelity and do not pollinate at random, which ensures that the pollen reaches the correct plant. From earliest times, honey has been regarded as priceless, food for the gods, in fact. 
To get some idea of its value, just think of its delicate raw materials and complex production process. It is both a food and a medicine. Because of its high, easily digestible sugar content, it is an ideal source of energy for both the healthy and the sick. It is absorbed directly into the bloodstream without any further digestion, where it has a beneficial effect on the heart and nerves. It can increase the hemoglobin content of the blood, which is why invalids, especially children, often used to be given treatments of milk and honey. It can also improve the physical and mental well-being of older people who may have problems with their digestion. So, it's a brief introduction from a quite sweet book from the I think, 1980s or 70s called Bees and Beekeeping by Ermgard Diemer. I think it was translated from, from German originally. And then and another fun fact on just on beekeeping there, it just reminded me while you were reading it. Um, a lot of different works said that I don't want to say it's the only because you know someone will say, Oh no, this culture over here does this, but it's one of the only um domesticated insects that you know human beings have brought in mm. um, compared to any others, which I think is, is, is fascinating. Fascinating, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it gives it gives a kind of a sense, I suppose, of the uh, their value and then also the sense of wonderment in it that they evoke. Um, and this idea that there's somehow there's another worldlier kind of quality to them as well. Mm-hmm. So this is, I suppose, a brief overview, but then to look at, at bees in Ireland, what do we have? So Geoffrey Keating, the, the, um, the 17th century Irish historian from County Tipperary, in Furnace Facet or Erin, we have a manuscript copy of it here, uh, The History of Ireland, he basically tries to kind of refute and rebuke some of the earlier claims that had been made by kind of military observers and the Romans and so on about Ireland and Irish culture. So he, he, he says, uh, there are some ancient authors who lay lying charges against the Irish. Solanus in the 21st chapter says that there are no bees in Ireland. So Gaius Julius Solanus was a Latin grammarian and geographer and compiler from the third century. You don't get compilers anymore. No, you don't. What do you do? I'm a compiler. I'm going to compiling. Um, anyway, so he had said, that, oh, there, there are no, no bees. But then William Camden, in his text Britannia, which is a kind of an interesting text, there's a section there on, on Ireland and the manners of the Irishry, and there's little examples of, of from folk tradition there. But um, he writes, in comparison with uh, Solanus, he says, of bees there are such numbers that they be found not only in hives, but also within the bodies of trees and holes of the earth. So it would seem in Irish tradition that bees, uh, unlike what Solanus said, were, were plentiful. And from yeah. from the earliest times, do we know when, or what's the history of bee well, cultivation and use in in Ireland? It's hard to to um, put a date on it in Ireland. Um, some of the earliest evidence that we have, um, just speaking about you know people coming over here and, and, and documenting, there is a twelfth century topography where this guy says that um, bees would you know thrive here if it wasn't for so many of our yew trees because they're terrified of our yew trees, hmm. um, and that was later debunked to say look there's absolutely no evidence to, to suggest that bees are terrified of yew trees mm. um but i suppose some of the, the earliest evidence of us interacting with with bees in ireland um or perhaps the, the most comprehensive is the the bee judgments or the the bee, the bee laws the bee yeah laws, what yeah. were they what was the story um so basically it was when you know in, in roughly seventh eighth century ireland when there was a sort of pastoral mixed farming um there was concern with regards to animals trespassing on other animals property or other animals land but with bees it was kind of hard to enforce those rules so the biopark were necessary due to the importance of honey in society um you know it's many different uses that you kind of touched on earlier with medicinal properties it's used as sweetener the production of mead and then you know wax for things like candles and so on um so basically when a first when a person first started beekeeping they were required to, to provide a four pledge to their four nearest neighbors so that's like a token of you know personal importance um, so or four tokens of personal importance or also you know could have just been money as well mm-hmm. I think um, but what that meant was for the first um, three years of their 
you know, role as a as a beekeeper, they were um, immune from any kind of legal claims that their bees may, you know, trespass, you, yeah, trespass, trespass basically, or, or break any laws. And then um, in the fourth and fifth year, each of those four neighbors were entitled to a swarm from the first neighbor's hive, um, and then the first neighbor's pledges were returned to them. Hmm. So it's this kind of idea: mm-hmm. if you know me and you know you and, and two other people or three other people, if I want to start a hive, I give tree you guys something like a deposit of, yeah like a deposit except you get a return because then you eventually get a swarm from mm-hmm. the hive mm-hmm. um bees were granted immunity from stinging the man um who basically was trying to rush them rob them move them anything like that harass them yeah harass them or whatever it is but um there were times when the bee wasn't given immunity so for example if they attacked anyone who was just walking about minding his own business mm. um he would have to prove that he did not kill the bee Hmm. Um, because if you killed the bee, that would be considered justice enough. But yeah, wasn't it thing that yeah you yeah. weren't told if you killed the bee, that was it. yeah. It's like no, that's, that's enough. You killed yeah. It, then that's yeah. It. Yeah, yeah. So if what if, if got the bee, away, yeah, if the bee stung you and got away, you were entitled to your fair share of honey. Uh, which which is, do you know how much it was? I've not no idea how, how no, much it was. Okay. It was just you know uh, maybe it was based on on injury. If you were, maybe if you were stung in it the was face, really sore. Or you were, you were <laughs> yeah. stung several times. Um, <laughs> just again, I don't want to get too much into the natural history things, but um, Aidan O'Hanlon um, from the Natural History in, in the Natural Museum of Ireland mm. um, was telling us like there, there's this sort of belief that you know if a bee stings you it dies immediately because yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's only one species of bee and there are hundreds of different species of bees. So oh, right. um, I think the idea as well that you know a bee can only sting you once and, and fly away. Mm. Um, you know it's it's not it's most of the time they will only sting you once and fly away because they're not that concerned. You know it's just kind mm-hmm. of protecting themselves and flying away or whatever. But I suppose when it comes to the to the bee judgments, you know, it's kind of like, well, how many times did the bee sting you? Maybe it's based on that. Maybe if you really annoyed this Show bee. Show me where the bee sting you. Yeah. This bee is um, in the room with us now. Yeah. And then as a really interesting thing, in the case of being stung in the eye and going blind, the keeper of the bees would have to forfeit the hive completely. Hmm. So if, if one of my bees stung you in the eye, I'd have to give you my the entire hive. hive. Um, and then that comes... There's a reference to that with um, uh, Congo Keok, king of Tara, who was blinded by a bee and had to step down from the throne due to the importance of, you know, an, an unblemished... You couldn't have a blemish of any sort, yeah. The dappers and the local goose bees. And bees. Go and get bees. Lord, save us, I hated them bees. Sorry, he never made the right use of them, like. They know the bees. He never got the cones right there, but he took out the cones on him, so there's, it was full of wee boys stuck in, in the cones. He got a bit of honey, surely, ever, but... There's no good. He had to feed them with sugar in the winter time. What did, how did they, what about wasps, uh, Annie? No, they never struggled that much with wasps did at they, all. Did you ever see them burn out wasps' nests or anything like that? Oh, I seen, I seen uh, Sheila here and she was dull. God, uh, only it was six o'clock in the evening, they might have been, uh, they totally killed them. And it was their own fault appearing there was a wasp nest right over the lane. And I went down to different seasons in the harvest time. And there was only one, and hot I went down, and Mrs. Devon was living in well, and she asked me, she says, Come on, and I stay with went, and I couldn't rest. And coming up the road, she was only was a wee lad, he's just running about now, she was Patrick and Amy's over there. The two run about together. But they're playing about, and I left the two at the house here. And up, I, I could hear the screams of them. And then he had a sow over at the house. And I thought, oh, I could have heard the two children. And I mind lifting a big stick down the road. To, to to bit off the sow and I come running and it was a queer race and I could hear them that they're over Dennis and I went over and I got the pair of them standing at the end of the house well you know Seamus she wouldn't have seen them with wasps they were in the manal direction not a wasp but a little me and 
Why the donuts? The, the pair of boys that booked up the nest. They booked the nest, passing by. And and uh, out the whole shit come out of them. And they was that bad I couldn't take them over the lane, I had to lift them. I had to lift them over the hedge into the bottom, over the wire and get them to the bottom. And they were in they were they were coming out of Seamus Dolly's ears and coming up by the neck of his shirt. Oh God, I'd never seen such a sight. And when I lifted her over, she had a wee red jumper on her. And it was just paved with wasps, the whole side of her jumper. There must have been thousands on them. So I got the clothes off them anyway, and he went home when he got settled down. And she was that bad, she went to bed. I did every stitch off them. And, and, and get them sorted out. That's what they got for poking them. But they never stung them? They never stung them. See, it had been early in the morning. Early, six o'clock, they lost the sting. Six o'clock in the evening. From that on, it between six and seven when this happened. It might have been seven. And how, come, how is it that they lost the sting? I don't know. Somebody said they lost the sting at that. They never stung them, but they frightened them. So many of them. They were just a swarm of them. And then, of course, I was kind of sorry then for Big Dunny and Sean, Sean McGinn was living over there. <coughs> they burned the nest then that evening. They went out to cross the lane and got the nest and they burned it. That was the usual way of getting rid of them. Aye, getting rid of them. But what were they doing, uh, say, in Grandma's time, if they had wasps or bees, uh, an odd one about, uh, I suppose there was a, they were around the house <coughs> and coming in and annoying them. How would they get rid of them? You know, the very little what, I've never seen a wasp hardly in the house. I don't know for why. You see, there was, there was, there was gooseberries and there was all the stuff outside that they let on. That's what they, they fed on. But there's a plan of wasps, I know what I would do with them. There's no in the year yet, last year there's so many, much rain. Leave charm, pots outside. I mean, there was a barrel over there in the street. And I left a couple of jump pots in it. And went, well, I went over one day till it's after it. I looked and, well, you know, the bloody barrel to the bottom, it was swarming with wasps. And they never bothered me. You see, they had their feeding outside. They're in looking for something to eat, and that's why. And I mind, I mind, uh, Who's this? There was a woman, and she could sit up in the corner, and when the wasp was right rife, she used to come here, she was in my Costco, and the wasp, they would be creeping around our, 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 our clothes, and she would never pass any mark, not one of them sting her. They would light on her, and they would creep around her, and but Lord, I would shiver. Well, they're very, they're bees and wasps are very, very, they're a very funny boy. They know who touches them and who doesn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Fergus Kelly, the amazing, the, he has these amazing texts on early Irish law, the Breton laws, and early Irish farming. He references this in terms of, as you mentioned there, like beehives, and these bee judgments, laws, and trespass. <clears throat> and it's, it's fascinating. He says, so he, he describes how these laws about bee trespass in early Ireland were kind of set up as a way to spread a commodity through the community by virtue of these kind of convoluted, um, unnavigable almost laws. So he says here in, in Early Irish Farming, Early Irish lawyers devised an ingenious set of rules on beekeeping which must have helped to spread this asset throughout the landowning community. The basic principle was one which might seem rather pedantic, i.e. that the bee which takes nectar from a neighbour's flowers is guilty of grazing trespass, or tarske, like any other domestic animal. However, this assumption enabled swarms from a beekeeper's hives to be gradually distributed among his neighbours until they all owned bees. At this stage, mutual trespasses would be expected to cancel each other out. 
When a landowner starts beekeeping, he is normally entitled to three years of freedom in which his bees can forage on his neighbour's land without liability. In the fourth year, however, the first swarm to issue from his hive has to be given to the nearest landowner on whose property his bees have done most, quote-unquote, grazing. So it's fascinating. It's kind of... Um, the early Irish laws seem slightly mental when we, when we read yeah, a lot of them. They get even more mental. Like That's kind of a really simplified version of it. Um, as well, if it, there was people called the Nemid, which were like kind of the high status people yeah, in yeah. that society. And if say I have a swarm and, and a beehive and it sets up a, a hive in your garden and you're one of the Nemid, you're entitled to its full produce. And then as well, finally, just on the, the bee laws, if a person came upon a swarm on unowned land, they were entitled to claim ownership over it, but they had to share one third of its produce with the church and with the, the community. Mm. Um, so time and again, you see, I suppose, there's like a kind of communal a cooperative element in a sense, or maybe cooperative is the wrong word, but like eventually the idea is that if you start off with a hive of bees, that in X amount of years down the line, the entire community has bees and can avail of their produce, basically. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And to, I suppose, tie into one of the first really nice native Irish words that I've come across in this research, another word for a wild uh, bees nest is coolsnoke, and that can also mean lucky find, which I suppose kind of ties into that law of if you come across this wild, wild bees nest, you are still entitled to two thirds of its produce and mm. you know, to share one third with the community. Yeah, yeah. So there's, I suppose, I guess if, if, you're, if you look at the early laws, it shows the prominence in a way of the importance of bees and bee yeah. production in early Irish community. But, um, but I suppose a lot of that kind of continues, you see that, that, that uh, importance come through into more recent folk tradition as well. Yeah. From the point of view of material culture like and uh, uh, the hives, it's worth maybe discussing a little bit of like hives and the types of, of hives that we have in tradition. And I'll tell you what I've seen in it, and I've never seen it anywhere. Uh, save for, save for strain and the honey. I see. I've never seen it anywhere in the day. Yeah. They used to keep bees and you see they were only the straw hives. I know. Well, you see, this Save them, it would be about that size. Mm. They put that, they say, over over a basin. Well, sometimes the basin would be too big, they say. Mm. Well, they put a rod across in a way that they say that it would fit right for the sail. So they'd leave the hive down on then and they'd drain out into it. And it was straining and draining together. I see. Well, that same, now, you're, just that you could discern the daylight through. I know. To be a, Fine, it was as fine as that. Like a pinhole. It was like she. Mm. Um, there is a little account from the school's collection, and that's kind of describing bees in general terms here. And this is from Cam Ross in County Leash, and it says, The bees live in a little house of their own out in the sun. Some are very cross, and more are not. If you went to lift up the hive, they would sting you. There are about four or five thousand bees in every hive. Some people like make a lot of money out of the honey. You would want to put them in a place where the sun is shining always. In the winter, you would have to feed them with sugar. There's another account here then from the National Monument Service, which they're the, they're the group that advised the Minister for uh, Department of Housing, Government and Local Government and Heritage on kind of legislation and, and policy issues regarding archaeological heritage. Um, and anyway, there's a nice piece on, on their website regarding bee holes. And these were kind of cavities that were built into the wall that we find in different parts of Ireland. Um, and it was meant to keep the, the beehive, or sometimes the skep, these kind of straw beehives that were constructed, and it was to keep them dry and safe from rain and wind and Irish weather in general, I suppose. 
And it describes these b-holes here, so I'll just read this, this description. It says, a b-hole is a cavity or alcove in a wall which helps to keep the wind and rain away from the skep, a straw of wicker. So what kind of a, a wicker beehive? And the bees living inside. Bowl is a Scottish word meaning a recess in a wall. Beeholes are usually found in walled gardens of houses dating from the 17th to the 19th centuries. An excellent example of bee bowls with rows of recesses rising to three tiers is to be found at Ballingarry in County Tipperary. Most beekeepers kept their skeps in the open covered by old pots or sacking before the introduction of the modern wooden hive in the late 19th century. Beekeeping was a very common activity in the past before sugar cane became plentiful. We forget that sugar was kind of a valued commodity or rare as well, a piece of audio to play in that regard in a minute. Beeswax was also in much demand for candle making as a lubricant and a waterproofing agent. It was also used as a moisturiser or polish for wood and leather. The Isle of Wight disease was first detected in Ireland in 1912 in an apiary near Dublin. By 1925, it was so prevalent in some counties that it resulted in the complete loss of all bee stocks. Dutch bees were imported, and when these were crossed with the native black bee, more stocks survived. In 2017, a Limerick Institute of Technology scientist proved that the pure native Irish honeybee, Apis mellifera mellifera, was not extinct as previously feared, but still existed on the island of Ireland. Um, so I suppose you get a sense maybe of the 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 use and the the kind of cultivation and and um, farming of bees for want of a better word. What's fascinating about that as well though, and I was saying it to you earlier in the museum, we have all these, you know, old cookbooks from the twentieth century, early twentieth century, and we were having a look through the different recipes to see mm. how much honey was being used and it was next to none that we could find, you know, up until, you know, maybe perhaps the sixties, seventies, eighties, it started being introduced, but previous to that, you know, honey was not you know, used really, it wasn't kind of like a jar of honey line in the press like you have like nowadays. Like have nowadays, millions So of... it could have been a case of where, you know, you are cultivating this honey, but you may have to, you know, sell it immediately, you know. So it's only been popularised probably in the, you think, the 20th century maybe? I would, to, I would to, say yeah, the mid-20th century, yeah. Or even, you know, um, I was telling you earlier on, my granny was saying how they never had, my granny's 93, and they never mm. had honey growing because they could never afford it. Mm. Um, so it, it is interesting to even think the fact that we are so famous for our honey, but in the past... There doesn't seem to be that much of evidence of, of honey being used, maybe in the, I suppose, Co com early, commonly, yeah, commonly in maybe surprised. the early 20th century, we could call it. What sort of bees did he keep? How many hives this man you were talking about? That man kept two hives. Mm -hmm. And had them for, for a long, long time. And it was wonderful work to see them bees, you know. Looking so often, we looked at the at the hives, and there was a little board outside in the box of the hive the bees were, and there was always maybe ten or twenty bees walking around that outside, and every honeybee that had perched down in the in the board, they'd come the the bees would come around that bee that landed back with the honey and would test the bee, you think, Aye. to know what was he going to do or what had he or. Was he one of their own or something like that? And he'd pass into the little box then into the to the hive. Aye. It was most that's years since I see that and I well remember it. Did he keep the bees for his own use or used he sell the honey Tom? Well he used to sell the honey. Mm -hmm. He used. Did you ever see him taking the honey out? No, I didn't. Mm -hmm. Uh what would you use honey for around the house besides a sweetener? Well, the honey would be used around the house for everything that they'd be doing with, for anything. 
you know. Everything, okay, well, give, give me a few examples of for anything that you tell us, if you came in or if any strangers came in, you'd get a shot of this honey. Was would you put it on bread? You'd put it on bread. Would you use it in bacon? Oh, you wouldn't use it in bacon, but you'd use it in bread or mm -hmm. in any other sort of cakes or things like that. Would you... Sornik, huh? Sorry, Margaret, so... Sornik. If you had... Well, that's what I want to hear, yeah. Uh, you know, so, or dry sore neck. neck, or that sore neck. Mm. You take a, well, half a glass of honey, and that was a, supposed to be a great cure, of course. You'd mix it with hot water. Hot water. Um, and thin it out. As though we had planned it, mm. here is a tape recording. This is Mrs. Malachny in Ross Gray in County Tipperary, and she's, it's a short piece, but she's describing essentially what you've just said there, how sugar was always scarce in former times. So mm. let's listen to her now. As I say, you had orchards everywhere, because as well as that, while you, where you had orchards, you had bees. There was an awful lot of bees kept for honey, because sugar was, I don't know, uh, <coughs> I mean, how would they manage, but... I suppose the last couple of hundred years sugar was coming in and that, but sugar was always scarce. And uh, the people, if they could keep a tree or two, usually it was two trees, a sour one for, uh, you know, and a sweet one. But uh, when the blackberries came in, they were all picked. Uh, they were the poor man's fruit, because uh, where you hadn't a uh, garden, a bit, of a, a bit of land at all, uh, it was the only thing that you could get. So Mrs. Lockton just there is talking about um basically how, how sugar was scarce and the importance of bees and then she references as well blackberries as the poor man's fruit as in yeah they're just they can be um scavenged i was going to say probably too intense a word but they can just be picked on the roadsides picked yeah. on it's picked. a couple of actually just scavenged. i suppose on, on, on what she was saying there there are a couple of phrases um from the school's collection on when to collect honey and when you know bees when it's good to see bees this mm. one is from uh, Ratfay in County Mead and it says on Bartholomew's Day, take the honey away, which is the 24th of August. Mm. And then another one from Thomas Quirk in Silvermines, County Tipperary. A swarm, of a swarm of bees in May is worth a load of hay. A swarm of bees in June is worth a silver spoon. A swarm of bees in July is not worth a fly, which is fascinating to think. Yeah, um, that rhyme is really common. Um, we found versions of that all over the country. And in terms of kind of, we see more about bees and weather div divination, we'll talk about it in a wee bit as well, but that, that kind of little rhyme of like, um, and in, in a sense, I suppose, watching the bees for what it portends in terms of the future, the crops in general, or the health of the crops, um, actually health of the crops and overall kind of, I was mentioning earlier that we have a kind of sense that bees or bee health is almost like a barometer for kind of the health of the natural world around us in general. And there's a piece here, this was collected by Asian Lina under the Urban Folklore Project, and this is from a Miss, Mrs. Maguire. And she describes watching bees on her land as they flew about the heather, and she describes kind of the, the characters from the bees. She says that the drones are very lazy and are kicked out of the hive, and that you were talking about swarming earlier. If the queen leaves, that, that all, all of the bees will, will leave the hive. But she references something which I just thought was interesting, kind of apt in terms of today, the nervousness that many, many of us feel about... Um, just the natural world around us, I suppose, and, and a kind of misuse of it in many ways. That even then she's saying, well, you know, soon there'll be no bees and they talk about no harvest and so on. So um, an apocalyptic we note here from Mrs. McGuire. But um, there was another thing, the bees. We had bees at home. Oh, yeah. Three, yeah. three beehives. 
and my mother law wrestler used to say to me, Come out now, because we live near a lot of heather. Come out now, that you watch the, the bees going off. They're not going off the day, they're going off another day, because the day isn't fine enough. And she said, You watch them the way they come out, and they go in a circle, and they go back again, they come out the next, come out the next day, and we watch them. And they're going up, flying up and down to the heather. So my brother Paddy, he was, you know, my brother and sister like, got married and went away, like, and he was not allowed to do. And he robbed them, took the honey off them, bringing big basins in sections. And he took the honey too late off them. And they stung him. And we got Dr. Flower, and he says, Put a, a match, paraffin oil in them three beehives. He said, With them green, white, and gold. He says, He was weak and conscious with the, sh- with the sting he got, the poison so much, because they got angry. So. When I was down, I seen them down in the bog thrown away like them. We never bothered with them afterwards. But the, it's marvelous too, the, the way they the go off and, um, in a swarm. The, the, the throw of the drone, because it's lazy. And then the brown bees, the bee that gets the honey, small bee. And the, the queen then goes off, and the, the, all the, the other young bees follow her. And she might lie in a tree. She laid up in a palm tree, and my brother put a sheet over and turned sugar on it. He cut the thing and he put the eyes on the door. Milo! He put them. He cut the, cut the branch off and put it in the hive. So the, that's, the, the, that's the fairy story of the hives. It's great how, the, the, how they work. Marvellous bees, you know. But they say now in time to come, with all they're putting in the land, there were no birds or no bees left. Or no fruit. Because I remember last year I went out to pick blackberries and I got an awful lot the year before, but there wasn't one. So. You hear that at the end, they say that there'd be no birds, no bees, no fruit. Yeah. Um, so that's Mrs. McGuire, I suppose. So she's talking in general terms, kind of reminiscing and re- watching the bees and and uh, mentioning bee stings and so on, but also just the idea that they're sort of, like I said, a barometer for, for why the, the health of the environment, of, of nature. It'd be interesting to know if it was uh, considered a matter of urgency when people were talking about it in the past versus now. You know how now in you know, all the nature documentaries that you see, people are talking about the urgency of we need to save the bees or else we're all going to go like we can't mm. human beings can't exist without bees but it's you know a matter of urgency you know with climate change and everything i wonder was it considered a matter of urgency in the past when they when they were talking about our reliance on bees um do you just i suppose on on other bee mortalities or bee extinction um the annals of ulster refer to two bee mortalities both in 951 and 993 and the main causes were considered to be uh, bad weather with parasitic spread and um, so we were talking there about like I suppose the fact that that honey, although it's super common today, like back in the day, as it were, it wasn't as oh, there you have, like screaming seagulls there, everybody. Uh, it wasn't as commonplace to have jars of honey basically sitting in in the press at home. Yes, and yet, although it, there there were times throughout history where I think it, it might have been common. Um, in in P. W. Joyce's work, mm. he refers to the rule of Saint Alba, uh, when monks prepared for dinner, they get on clean dishes, herbs, or roots washed in water, likewise apples, and mead from the hive to the depth of a thumb. Hmm. So this is something that, you know, it's, it's fascinating to think thumb, it, yeah, it, it yeah. perhaps came in cycles well, actually, throughout who, history. I think that Dahi Hogan, I think, references that a lot of beekeeping in Ireland was done through in, in the context of monasticism, that it was kept, yes. they were kept at the abbeys or whatever. Um, but we were mentioning P.W. Joyce there, his work is amazing, and... Um, uh, he mentions like place names, so his his um, Irish names of places an amazing text of his, and in that, he gives an example. So there's a couple of 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 places in Ireland which the in which the Irish language the version of the name refers to bees. Most yes. famous would be Clonmel, Clonmala, yes. Honeyfield, 
Mm-hmm. And, but he also mentions in the context of he's talking about a, a saint here. So he talks about uh, Saint Madonoch mm-hmm. of Tebrani in County Kilkenny and who came to a place in Fingal in your side of the world in North County yes. Dublin. Um, and it says from the circumstance, so this circumstance being on his, his as the saint kind of comes, he set and settles in Fingal, where he kept a swarm of bees and a portion of the bees were brought over from Wales by Saint Madonoch of Tebrani in County Kilkenny. And from this circumstance, the place where he stayed was called Lan Bachara, which is Lan Beecher, Lan Beecher today. Yeah, and it's still known as the Beekeeper's Church today. It's near Braemore and Balbriggan. But I think the fascinating thing about that is the Lawn Bacara is a combination of Welsh and Irish. So Lawn meaning church hmm. in, in Welsh and Bacara beekeeper hmm. in Irish. So it's yeah, church, right. of the beekeep, church of the Beekeeper. Hmm. Um, because he was over there in Wales with uh, St. David at a monastery and he was tasked with looking after the bees. And when he came back to Ireland, the bees pretty much followed him on a boat over and he, he went back to Wales and said to David, you know, like, here, here's the bees that keep following me back and you know it happened several times where every time he got on the boat to come back they followed him so eventually he said you know okay keep the bees bring them to Ireland um, so that's one of the I suppose stories on how, on how bees were introduced into Ireland we'll look at this we'll go and look at kind of um, bees and saints again but just to cover that, that story yeah so the, an account here from the school's manuscripts and in this it describes that exact story it says the patron saint of Tibrochny is Saint Madonna he is said to have been the first to introduce bees into Ireland during his sojourn with St. David in Menavia, he had charge of the bees of the monastery and attended them with the greatest care, so much that they were fruitful of honey in his hands. When he was returning thence to Ireland and had bid farewell to the holy abbot and monks and had entered the coracle to set sail, the bees, forming a large swarm, came and settled in the boat along with them. Madonoch, unwilling to rid the monastery of this treasure, brought them back to their hive. A second time, however, as he again entered the boat, they followed him. And when he again brought them back, they repeated the same a third time. St. David, hearing this, told him to bring the bees with him to Aaron. So this is a kind of an account um, invoking, I suppose, the activity of the saints, which suggests or which explains how bees first came to Ireland. And again, we'll look at this as we go and look at folk belief. But you have a sense that um, that bees are kind of sensitive to the character of their keepers and so on, or that, or that they... You know, they dislike certain people and they like other people, depending on, on their characters, essentially. But I want to read, just as we were mentioning um, in this context, I suppose, to, to, to read a bit about kind of bees in, in general, before we move to look at bees and folk belief. And this is from uh, The Lore of Ireland, an amazing text, an encyclopedia of myth, legend or romance by the great, late, great Dahi O'Hogan, Ganyan de Grosler. And here's this section here, his piece on bees. He writes... These valuable insects were more generally kept in former than in recent times, although a tradition held that they were introduced by a certain St. Mohonog of Tobarachna or Tibrani, County Kilkenny, in the 7th century is certainly apocryphal, it does appear that the Christian monasteries practiced beekeeping on a large scale. Bees were believed to be blessed creatures, probably because of their use of the, the use of their wax to make church candles. Yeah, and I was in uh, Rathborn Candles there during the week, which have been around since 1488. Yeah, the yeah. oldest candle-making company in the world, possibly one of the oldest Metal. companies in the world as well, but uh, they still supply all the churches in Ireland with candles, and they're still made of beeswax, mm. which is, is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And the, yeah, so, so it, 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 that he continues here, he says, uh, Bees were also uh, thought to be possessed of special wisdom and to take an acute interest in the affairs of their owners. If a bee entered the house, it was regarded as a good omen, and the bees in their hive would be told in advance of projects that the family intended to undertake in the belief that they might affect a beneficial influence. Now, when a member of the family died, it was customary to place a black piece of cloth in the hive so that the bees could join in the morning. So we'll talk about that later as well. But suffice to say that it's important, I suppose, to note 
apart from the kind of practical considerations that that there's always a kind of um otherworldly or slightly kind of numinous element to the behavior of bees and interpreting the bees and so on and i think it's fair to say as well like a lot of love i think people love bees people do people do love bees um now where are we let's look briefly at we're moving to talk about folk belief and bees yeah what do you have a sense of what were some of the kind of common like attitudes or beliefs regarding bees in tradition i think just i suppose we, we kind of touched on already with their, their sacredness and the importance of telling them everything that all the, the important news that happens um because sometimes they'd leave if you didn't if you kind of yeah yeah there's and of course just that Roger kipling um marriage birthday variant who's across the seas all your sad are merry and you must tell the bees mm-hmm. so it's this idea that any sort of big events that happen within your life the bees need to know about it and especially you know things like marriage and death um i've read, read a couple of accounts where it's considered good luck if a, a bee comes into the church and lands on the bride hmm. considered considered a good omen but then also if you are getting married to put some kind of white uh, clot or, or, or crepe on the, the hives to show you know you're celebrating with us the bees are celebrating mm. with us and then in turn as well with telling the bees and dead customs putting a kind of black veil or a black crepe on the hive to mm-hmm. let the bees mourn most recently um when the queen of england died her beekeeper told um the bees when when about her dying and mm. it's interesting just to because you know he's given first-hand experience of it and he's talking about you know kneeling down gently to each hive and saying know your master is gone but your new master will come and he, he will be kind to you so don't leave um but then there are there are you know plenty of accounts in the archive as well of telling the bees an interesting one here uh, so this is from galway so when the head of the house dies and there are bees kept some person has to go out and tell the bees that the head of the house is dead if this is not done the bees will leave a man named mccormick had 17 hives hives of bees and he used to be watching out for them he could put his hand into a hive and take out a handful of bees and they'd never sting him. But when he died, no one went out to tell the bees that he was dead. Hmm. The day his corp- corpse went up to Bowerine, the country lane, the bees followed him up and never went back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. And there's also, you know, a couple of accounts of like two people need to tell the bees. Hmm. Um, you know, it's a it, it difference between And it's specifically to tell like your bee hives as opposed to go out and you can't just tell the neat, some random bumblebee doesn't care. It's like your hives, right? From Yeah, from the sense I, I can get of it, it's that it's an intimate experience. So it's not kind of just going out and shouting into the wilderness. He's, he's gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's, we don't care. Yeah, and may, maybe even saying it to, if, like, like there where he had 17 hives and mm-hmm. I don't know how many hives the, the queen had, but... It, I think it, it, it is a case of telling each hive as opposed mm-hmm. to just, you know, kind of yeah, announcing no, it's, 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 it's like it's mass a more or something, you know? kind yeah. of, yeah, yeah. Um, then, then there's this other uh, thing that I found on weight games to do with bees, mm. which I thought was interesting. It kind of ties in with the desk, dead customs. So this was called bees. And, uh, this is a kind of horrible game. They, this is where they, they don't tell you. Yeah, this is kind of like a trick that, yeah, that yeah, people yeah. play. Um, so this is from... Um, uh, Peter Skinnader in Dava County Monaghan, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, bees is bees in this game, a man who does not know the game uh, is chosen to be the hive, another man is chosen to be the queen bee, and all the rest are bees. The bees then go outside and bring in sticks and other articles, then they leave this at the foot of the man who is the hive. When they have enough, the queen bee tells them to go and gather honey. The bees all go outside and fill their mouths with water and come in and spit the water on the hive. Nice. Job done. Take that. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, it's the, the white game is always good crack. There's a sort of sense, like, actually, before we go on, I have a piece of audio that I found. From, this is from um, from the Mona McLaughlin collecting, one of the, again, the Urban Folklore Project, and she's talking to um, Miss Dorothy Emerson, who's a clairvoyant, and, she's, and Dorothy is talking about 
how she's given death customs in general. So <clears throat> I suppose generally it was very common at the moment of death, um, you know, you stop the clocks, you cover the mirrors, things that the soul might get sort of um, confused by or trapped in, that sort of stuff. And also the bees are told. So in this, she uh, oh yeah, and she also has a critique of um, materialism and rationalism at the end, which is a bit crack. Anyway, this is Dorothy Emerson and Bees and Death. When anybody dies in a house, all mirrors are covered at once, and all, you see, mm-hmm. uh, windows are left open, and all mirrors are covered. Mm-hmm. This is the idea, I think, that the soul, when uh, passing out, gets confused, might get confused, and dash itself into a mirror, mm-hmm. or uh, could not get out. But of course, if you come to think of it, that could not possibly happen, because presumably no soul could behave. <laughs> it's rather hard to explain these things behave like that, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But that is, um, mm-hmm. at once, nearly all houses, no matter whether they're big houses or little houses, uh, all mirrors are covered at once and all doors mm-hmm. and windows left open for a short mm-hmm. time. Yes. Did you ever hear of the bees being told about it? Oh yes, that happened to us once. Mm-hmm. We had um, a coachman called Helen who died and we had, the bees didn't really belong to us, it was this house we went to live in after Milton and we found all these bee skeps in the garden, you see. Mm-hmm. So I suppose we just went on with them and um, we forgot to tell the bees about Helen's death. Mm-hmm. They were gone the next day, never saw them again. Really? Yeah. Never thought about it. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to tell the bees, yes. But again, you don't know all these, lots of these things have changed so do you mm-hmm. see. That's the trouble today. Mm-hmm. There's such an enormous lot of, of um, interesting things that have gone out of the world mm-hmm. because they've all become rather, you know, materialistic and mm-hmm. rationalistic and so on. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's uh, Dorothy Emerson and she's talking about that, that kind of widely known custom, I think, um, of telling the bees. And a couple of accounts from our manuscripts, again, the school's collection, we could find zillions of these, but here's one from Cratlow, County Clare, it says, there are several practices about deaths and funerals, such as when a beekeeper or a person who has bees dies, the bees must be told. If not, the bees would die or go away. A crepe should also be hung over the door of the hive, again, that kind of crepe, black crepe paper. And then from Croom, County Limerick, when anyone dies in the house, clocks must be stopped, the chairs turned upside down and the geraniums covered. If there are bees kept by the people of the house, the bees must be told and a piece of black uh, black cloth or paper presumably put on the hives or the hives covered. There's a couple of interesting like ideas in terms of um, that the soul could sometimes leave the body in the shape of a bee um, and that this is, this is in what's commonly known the Guntram legend where um, two people are out and two friends are out and one of the lads falls down and just takes a rest on the side of a hillside and falls asleep and a butterfly or a moth or a bee is seen coming out of his mouth and it kind of wanders around and then you know walks on some stones and climbs up and down trees some stone and climbs back into his mouth at which point the guy wakes up and then relates this fantastic dream he had and the, the, the kind of the inference being that that his friend sees he's like oh your soul left in the form of, of a bee and so in the same sense that that sometimes a sudden departure of bees from the hive would presage a death in, in that's yeah. that's the kind of idea. Yeah. There were other accounts that kind of suggested that when the owner dies, the idea of allowing the bees to mourn means that the bees live, not that they leave, that they, you know, you know, putting a, a crepe or, or uh, a veil on the hive allows the bees to continue to live <laughs> as opposed to preventing them from leaving, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, 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 because they need to be brought into mourning as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then on the subject of death and divinity and 
piece, this account from um, the main manuscript collection from County Mayo, and it says, it's in Irish, but here's the English translation, is that they say, when the Jews were crucifying our saviour, the tears that were falling from his eyes, they were turning into bees and taking to the sky, and that was how the bees first came into the world. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. A few more bits and pieces here from the school's collection regarding bees and luck. So in County Longford, in the 1936 edition of the journal Belladus, Caught Nidraldig writes that it's very lucky for bees to come to a house. Uh, in Corn the Galach in County Kerry, if a swarm of bees come to you from another person's hive, even if you know the owner, you should not allow it to be taken back from you or you will lose your luck that year. The idea that kind of uh, your luck is embodied almost in bees and that wherever they go, it's bound up in, in, in them. Um, it is considered lucky to have a swarm of bees come to anyone as they are said to bring the luck with them. And then we have a note here on bee stings. The sting of a bee is good for rheumatism. When a bee sheds his sting, he dies. This is what you mentioned earlier. A raw onion rubbed to a sting deadens the pain and prevents swelling. How would you cure a bee sting? They'd give them one if I wouldn't. I couldn't tell you that. But a bee sting was, was, was a severe sting. But if you got a sting, surely you'd do something, Tom. You wouldn't just leave it. You'd try and fix it somehow, wouldn't you? You would, but with the fixing you're doing. How would you fix it, so? Yeah? Is, is to bear the pain only. That's all we used to have to do with it. You'd never put anything on it at all? Nothing. Margaret, would you put anything on it? I never put a shake from it. Because you were off the book, you know? Well, Sammy and the cleaner, the bottle below, she wrote, for stings. Mm-hmm. And the children. And this would be just something you get from the chemist, yeah, though, yeah? Yeah, oh, it is. In a good number of parts of the country's home, if anybody in the house had died, the thing that had. One of the first things you do is you go out and you tell the bees. Now, this is, it happens all over the country, Tom, but if this is not a beekeeping area, I just want to know that have you ever heard of that custom at all, Tom? No, I had never heard that. Um, did you ever hear that a bee coming into a, a house was a sign of good luck? I didn't. Right. And did you ever hear of people who used to carry a bee on a, either on a reaping hook or on a side as a sort of charm to speed up the work at all time? No. And, and the movement of bees around the fields, could you tell anything about weather or anything about luck or anything like that at all time? Well, you couldn't. Grand. You couldn't. Coming to the end of our explorations here, we can only kind of give like a very, a very brief overview, really. But um, we mentioned the arrival of bees to Ireland through the saints or whatever. But yes. there's another saint, St. Gubnet, who's probably... St. Gubnet, who... Really is so, you mentioned actually at the start of the podcast that you're getting this picture, the Harry Clark window, yes. a depiction of St. Gubnet. And she was, she's, there's a particular devotion to her in um, County Cork, right? In, in Ballyvorney County Cork. Can you tell us about St. Gubnet and her like connection to... Yeah, so I think what's really fascinating is... about St. Gubnet compared to other saints is that most of what we know of her comes from folklore as opposed to other ones where there's, you know, hey, or she's written about their lives. But there's this idea that um, she fled to the Aran Islands because her life was in danger and then she was visited by God and told that, you know, uh, create your, you know, church where you'll see nine white deer. And she travelled, you know, from the Aran Islands and travelled through, you know, 
Kerry and Cork and Clare and so on. And mm. when she got to these different locations, she saw different numbers of white deer. But eventually, when she got to Ballygorny, she saw the nine white deer. That's where she set up her church. And she's known to be, you know, the patron saint of bees and ironworkers, and you know, to introduce bees to Ireland. And there's many different variations of this story, but there's this idea that when invaders were coming to Ireland to basically steal cattle and you know, run, you know, pillage and pillage and burn and whatnot uh, throughout the country, uh, she saw this happening, and she lifted up her beehive mm. and. All the bees swarmed out of it and basically stung all the invaders until they ran away. In other versions of the story, they actually turn into soldiers and they go and they they kill all oh, the invaders. Savage. It's it's very fascinating, but it's she's very much a as opposed to um, maybe Bridget being more of a, a patient uh, saint, if you will. Um, saint Gubnit kind of comes across as someone who has no time for messers in, in mess some kind of a way. If if she sees some kind of wrongdoing, she immediately she stops attacks it. you with yeah. bees and asks questions later. Yes, pretty or much. Doesn't even ask questions. Bees first questions later. Bees first questions later. And doesn't her name, the etymology of her name, come taught from, to me from Gawa, like Gawa yeah, the Smith, yeah, as in Smith. And then there's also um, you know this idea that she's the, sort of the female version of the um, blacksmith for the two of the Donham, which was Gubnit New. Um, those G G O B H N I G U I B N I um, yeah, um, that she's like the sort of female counterpart to this person, and then you know bees were added on because of this sort of uh, femininity associated with nature and, and and so on. That's kind of how that um, mm. got tied in, which is fascinating. But also when they were doing um, archaeological works at Ballyvernie, they actually found a lot of traces of ironworking that that happened there, mm. which is fascinating. fascinating. Yeah, yeah, but like I said, there's no like we have other lives of the saints that we can read and so on, but not with her. There's no. No, with her, it's mainly true oral tradition that things are being passed down. Maybe that's why we have so many different variations of the same story of her, you know, using her, her beehive as a weapon. Um, mm. You know, and, and Crofton Croker writes about that in Fairy Legends of the South in 1825 as well. What does, what's his? So there's this account from uh, Crofton Croker's Fairy Legends of the South, 1825, on St. Governor using her beehive as a weapon. So over 800 years ago, a powerful chief on the point of waging war against the head of another clan, seeing the tr infer inferiority of his troops, prayed to St. Gubna for assistance in a field adjoining the scene of the approaching battle. In this field, there was a beehive, and the good saint granted his request by turning the bees into armed men who issued from the hive with every appearance of military discipline, arranged themselves in ranks, and followed the leader to contest where they were victorious. After the battle, gratitude instigated the conquering chief to visit the spot from whence he had obtained such miraculous aid when he found that the hive had also been transformed from the straw or rushes of which it was composed into brass and that it had become not unlike a helmet in shape. This relic is in the possession of the O'Hurley family and is held by the Irish peasantry in such veneration that they will travel several miles to procure a drop of water from it. When they, which they imagine if given to dying relatives or friends will secure their admission into heaven. Not long since the water from this brazen beehive was administered to a dying priest by his conjurator in compliance with the superstition. Hmm. That's Croft and Croker. That's Croft and Croker, um, who, you know, did was known to sometimes take poetic license, but nonetheless, That's still a fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know what you mean. There's another piece of here from the manuscripts, and it, it describes the same story. It was kind of going with this until we, until we finish up then, where it says it references um, the Feast of St. Gubnit, which is on the 11th of February. February, yes. Um, and it says, although no longer a holiday of obligation, the 11th of February, the Feast of St. Gubnit, is still kept as a day of particular devotion in Ireland and association of her name. The supposed miracle that connects the name of Gubnet with bees is commemorated by the presence of a tacker or beehive close to her statue at Ballyvourney near Cork, and which is known to this day as St. Gubnet's tacker. The story current in the neighbourhood is that a poor widow who was unable to pay her rent 
had her sole wealth a few cows whose milk she sold, seized by bailiffs, and in her distress invoked assistance of St. Gubnet, whose church she was passing at the moment, while police and bailiffs drove her cows before them. I think we, should, we could do with a bit of invoking of St. Gubnet in Ireland nowadays. Even as she prayed, a tall woman appeared, holding a beehive in her hand and clad in a brown cloak. Looking with compassion at the tearful face of her supplicant, St. Gubnet, for it was she, raised the hive in the air, whereupon out flew a swarm of bees that were immediately transformed into a troop of armed soldiers. At a sign from the saint, they fell upon the bailiffs and police who were driving the cows away, but who, the moment themselves at the mercy of the soldiers, began to scream and howl and scattered in all directions. They were far too eager to save their lives to give a thought to the poor woman's cows, which she at once took possession of. She would have fallen on her knees at the feet of St. Gubnet, but that the vision vanished as suddenly as it had come. It's um, it's an amazing kind of, I don't know, there's just an amazing scope between art, cultural kind of practices, folk belief, religious tradition, ideas around the sacred, ideas around the other world, ideas around the human soul, ideas around weather divination, life and death divination, idea that they kind of, they share in our sorrows, they share in our joys, that they have to be notified of kind of all of our daily affairs, hopes, dreams, activities, whatever. Yeah. Um, and that they kind of, that they, I don't know, they, they're even aware of, of, say, the character sometimes of their owners or the people who interact with them. There's a sort of nobility in a way to bees. Yes. Um, or a sort of, they have a kind of dignity, like, and they're, they're obviously industrious and so on, but they have these, all these kind of sacred connotations as well. Yeah. But, um, and I think, like, as you were saying there, this sort of all-encapsulating thing about on all these different parts of life, it kind of, it's, hopefully that's what we're going to reflect in the exhibition. Mm. It's, you know, it's a collaboration. It is in the Country Life Museum, and, and but it is, you know, folk life. It is natural history. Yeah. It is art and industry. Yeah. I mean, and we're going to reflect that as well with the, like, children's toys, you know, cups and saucers. Everything you see nowadays is just bees on absolutely everything. Mm. Um, and there's all this, obviously, a focus with climate change on, on helping the bees and saving the bees. And, um, like, beeswax wraps are used, you know, to keep food fresh and stuff like that. Yeah, my little kiddos get foil. that. My missus was after Yeah, there. so, like, all this kind of stuff, it's it's not like bees were once sacred. It's like bees have always always been sacred. Are and, sacred, yeah. You know, yeah. and now they're even more reflective in our in our material culture, you know, when we do put them on mugs or, mm-hmm. you know, plates and all that kind of stuff. So, every hopefully, all different all the different aspects of bees in human life from all those different areas like folk life, natural history, you know, art and industry will be reflected in the exhibition. Mm. Can't wait to see it, man. Can't wait to see it. Um, amazing work that you put together on it. And uh, where can people find out more about the work that you do or the exhibition or anything? Would you point it to Yeah, so you can visit National Museum of Ireland Country Life. Um, so there we have online exhibitions. We have somewhat of an online catalogue. Um, there's news there about all the talks and different things that go on in the museum. And then there'll be information on the exhibition as well once it, once it gets launched. And, and the Museum of Country Life and all the, the National Museum, you're open to the public, just kind of rock free, up? And... Free and open to the public, which is um, very important because, you know, the, the tax that you pay goes into keeping these museums mm. open. So uh, please do come and have a look. It's, it's an absolutely wonderful place. Country Life is a savage repository. And there is lot. There's lots of kind of crossover and collection with the folklore commission as well. So the, yeah. The, the well, the, the establishment of the Irish folklore commission, you know, is in a sense was also the establishment of the beginning of collection of folklore objects. Mm. So a lot of the earliest, like although we do have pre twentieth century objects, they were collected from say the nineteen thirties onwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is fascinating. And again, you know, there's A.T. A. Lucas and lots of different collectors mm-hmm. here Legends. works together. You know, went out and field work together. So. It, it really is, I, I think, the perfect marriage between oral tradition and material culture, mm-hmm. between the folklore collection here and the, the National Museum of Ireland. Stuff Country the Life, yeah. yeah, this is a story from another day. Yes. Legend here. Thanks so much. 
Um, I hope everyone enjoyed that. And uh, I hope you will be with us again next time. And Tiernan, thank you so much for coming to talk about the exhibition. And uh, yeah, pleasure. <laughs> Savage. Cheers. Sloan. Thank you.